todo el mundo. What's up, everybody? I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson, author of the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series and director of the film The Ventures Stars on Guitars. You are listening to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast for people who love music from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And now, on to the show. Today I have a co-host, Ruth Ann Jaggi, author of the short story Tiny Danger. Demon Seamstress for the Band, which appears in volume two of the book series, Do You Fear Like We Do, the 70s edition. So hello, Ruthann. Hi, Stacy. Nice to see you again. Nice to talk to you. How are you doing? Oh, I'm great today. Ready to dive into your rock and roll nightmare. You ready to? <laughs> oh, there, there's so many of them. It's such a great series. Everybody who's read the series absolutely loves it. Oh, thanks. Well, you and I do go back a few years, um, having met through the incredible Books of Horror Facebook group. And um, we both have stories in the official group anthologies. Um, but here's something I don't know about you. When did you actually start writing horror? Oh, well, actually, it's been about two and a half years. Um, Pre-COVID, you know, so many of our current authors, new in indie authors and traditionally published authors, came about through COVID because people had more time, they were home, they were reverting back to hobbies. I actually started before. Um, out of the blue one day, I entered a contest, a writing contest I saw online for a very, very big noted publisher. Now, mind you, I didn't have a clue. I didn't know anything about formatting. I didn't know anything about how big this publisher was. I just knew that I had always written and I always wanted to go into professional writing and horror has always been my favorite genre in all things and all mediums and I entered the contest and didn't get kicked back right away kind of made it through a few rounds did not get chosen for this noted anthology I mean I'm talking big big names way over my head way out of my league but I did get a really lovely note from the editor and he said I had noted in my my cover letter which was also badly formatted that it was my first story And he said, whatever you do, keep writing. Oh, he wow. said, I will read your work. He said, please keep writing. 
And I did. So for two and a half years, it's pretty much consumed my life more than I ever intended it to. But what a great, great ride it, it is. The people, the community, everything about it. Um, I just love it. And like I say, it's become a big part of my life anymore. So it's been about two and a half years. Wow. Yeah, it seems longer. You've come up mm -hmm. with so many great stories and you never seem to run out of cool ideas. And your story in Rock and Roll Nightmares, Tiny Danger is, of course, a play on Elton John's Tiny Dancer. Um, but tell us about the premise and what inspired you. Well, I came up with the idea. You and I were chatting when you came to me about the fabulous idea of these books spanning the different eras. And you pretty much had some ideas and you said, well, if there's another song you'd like to use, um, Almost Famous is everybody's favorite movie. And I think I had just seen it a couple of evenings before. And of course the song Tiny Dancer was running through my head. Well, I thought, what if there's a demon seamstress for the band? And I actually had a friend and unfortunately her daughter told me last December she succumbed during COVID. Um, like so many people, um, she was a little bit older and her health had just declined, but she was actually a costumer in the sixties and seventies. And I remember her telling me stories. We were both involved in a wearable art gallery about how she had this industrial sewing machine that could sew through seven layers of skin and how she had made stage costumes for some very, very noted um, rock stars, um, including Steven Tyler and some other of the more flamboyant characters that we all know and love. Um, and back then it was actually the girls that kind of fell into that some of them were groupies to start with. They were girls that followed the band. You know, back then it wasn't a thousand dollars to go see a rock star, a rock show. It was like $10. And a lot of the girls got into it from college and she was a fine arts major. And she was following the band around a lot and kind of took up with one of these band members in some band and she could sew and he was like, hey, well, we need stuff worked on and can you tighten these pants for us? And can you make things look bigger when we're wearing these clothes on stage? And then she started sewing leather and she started sewing velvet. And I think it evolved and she did become a professional costumer. So when I was considering about that, my character Betty Bluing for the story, I thought, well, what if Betty's one of these girls, but kind of not really. She really would like to be a seamstress, but through the course of events that happen in the story, she takes a different trajectory and she becomes victimized rather than somebody who is embraced by the rock community. Um, so that was the premise for it was I actually knew, knew someone well. She was, she was a dear friend who was a costumer who had a lot of pictures on the walls of her studio and they would come to her and you know, back then it was before internet. So all of this was done on telephone, maybe with a photograph, maybe by something set in the mail, a fabric sample or something. And it stuck with me um, to be that creative that you could take someone's ego and vision and then dress them for stage performances. And then you interject um, the possession or being taken over by a demon who's, who, who makes you powerful. But as you know, a lot of my characters in my stories are strong, powerful females. Yes. So I'm gonna twist her around the story and she goes from being the victim to being 
powerful because of what she does sewing for the band. That's right. And she sews leather, but it may not be the kind of leather we're familiar with. Oh. <laughs> Pretty scary. It may not be what everybody wants to wear, um, <laughs> but, but Betty's, Betty's got skills. <laughs> <laughs> she sure does. Um, now, Rock and Roll Nightmares fans can get a bonus with the 1970s edition because when they order a signed copy, they get a holographic sticker of your character, Betty Blue Wing. And I love that idea. I mean, and it's something you do for all your stories and books, right? I do it for most of them. Like I say, a lot of my stories have got very strong female characters. Um, and for me, when an illustrator takes my description or my chicken scratches, as I call them, and I say, this is my character, can you breathe life into her when you see that you go oh, even though she's a figment of your imagination when it's actually brought to fruition and she becomes an entity on a screen or on a piece of paper or on a sticker then she becomes real um i started doing it with one of my characters in good southern witches she's a young texas water witch and her name is Bertie, and Mar Garcia, Mar Mary Garcia is her name, and she's from Barcelona, and she's a terrific dark illustrator. And I was working with her on a project at the time, and I said, "Could you draw her for me?" Well, it kind of it kind of snowballed from there, and I started sending her more of my characters to breathe life into for me. Um, and I do have a series of them, and I keep saying eventually I'm going to get them framed and put on a wall. Um, because they, they mean a lot to me. And the way she drew Betty, because she was a child of the 70s with her low slung patchwork bell bottoms yeah. and her long flowing hair. And then the tools of her trade, her sewing accoutrements as it were, which eventually saved her life in some ways. Um, but we won't give the, the spoiler away, but Betty also has something that's very obvious about her appearance, the changes through the course of the story. So I do try to do it with a lot of my strong female characters. Um, and it's kind of like become a joke, but I get so excited about it when I get the, the stickers and the drawings back. Um, and I do have some more, I think, if you do need some more of those. Um, but I wanted to make Betty different. So she's got a hologram effect of her sticker representative of the psychedelic days and the days of the 70s when everything was was different and it was colorful and it was vibrating even so much more than we do now in the music scene. Um, so yeah, I love having that life breathed into my characters through illustrations. Yeah, I love it too. And of course, anyone who orders the paperback uh, will get a copy of that uh, sticker as well. They'll get a sticker in their book if they order it through my online store for Rock and Roll Nightmares. Um, but I wanna talk too about your current book, which is The New Girl's Patient. And I wanted to know if you have anything else in the works. Oh gosh, oh my gosh, Stacy! it's just been insane. Like I said, I started this as a hobby and it's taken over my life and my world and I love it. Uh, the New Girl's Patient is a novella, it's short, released in January from DNT Publishing. And once again, loaded with strong female characters. It's a little bit darker than I sometimes write, but I had a wonderful editor, Patrick Harrison III. And when I asked Pat if there were certain scenes that were too dark, he said, Number one, he said, do you know who you're talking to? Because he's known for his splatter westerns and his dark ventures into things. He's one of the uh, owners of Death's Heads Press. Um, and, and 
he really encouraged me to to leave those dark scenes in there, Stacy, because he said it would broaden my reader appeal. Um, even though I'm known for writing strong female characters, it's great when the guys send me messages. They're like, man, you went there, girl, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so that's, that's my novella that's currently doing extremely well. I've got several short stories coming out this year that I wrote last year. I'm not doing open calls per se this year. I did so many of them last year, they almost did me in because I was constantly trying to do PR and I was constantly trying to keep up. I think yeah. I'm published in over 20 anthologies at this point. This year, it's about, so, it's about solo work. I'm working on a fabulous um, collaboration novel with an incredible author, female author from Scotland, Natasha Sinclair. And it's called Delavan House. And hopefully we'll have it out by the end of this year. And we'd like to have our tagline that says, it's a combination of the Wicker Man meets practical magic. So we're going with a very strong folk horror, isolated Gothic, two females from two opposite ends of the world that collide and mayhem and madness and all kinds of fun thing. I'm working on a soul novel um, the title is, is, is Her Surgeon's Knot, which was actually inspired by, the, by a question a reader sent in when I was doing a, an interview online. Um, and I'm probably looking at that at the beginning of next year. And I'm going to spill the beans here um, because it really hasn't been announced yet. But there will be a full-length novel sequel to The New Girl's Patient in 2000. Oh. 23. Um, my female character, Jamie Carver, who is the final girl and the last, the, the new girl's patient. There's a whole lot more to her story and this strange little world town she lives in. So there will be a full length novel sequel coming out to that next year. Needless to say, it's, I got a lot of writing to do, like yourself. No <laughs> One thing leads to another, bleeds to another. Um, so oh, wow. I asked for a while and how fortunate I feel to be able to do it and we're lucky to have your writing to read it's, you're one of my favorites oh, thank you thank you everything you've got coming up and so for fans um, who want to follow your exploits online where's your favorite social media that they can find you um, I'm pretty much everywhere and if you go to my website www.ruthannjb.com there are links to all of my social media. I'm trying to be a little bit more active than I used to be. As you know, it all takes so much time. It's no. a full-time job managing your social media, trying to update a website, and then cram in actual writing. So yeah. I'm trying to be better, and I do try to hit and run with certain things. Um, there's also a wonderful um, charity anthology that I'll be a part of that's releasing in August. And it's called The Avarice. And there's going to be some seven incredible female writers with the theme of greed. And all of the money is going to the Ladies of Horror Scholarship Fund. So that comes out in August. And I finished the story for that the other day. Um, so me, I, I just keep going. And I'm saying no to a lot of things, Stacey. But I won't ever say no to you. Because okay. we have so much fun when we do projects together. And you know I'm a huge fan of all you do. I don't know how you do it. But I love the fact that you do. And you always look so great doing it. 
Well, it must be a redhead thing. We're both redheads. It must be. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Got to be it. Um, well, thank you so much for uh, being here today, but and for co-hosting, which is really exciting. We have a, a great guest today, another horror author. The more the scarier, right? Absolutely. And Josh's book is really going to set the bar high for body horror and evocative horror. And it's such an original premise. I can't wait for people to read it. I think he said it, it comes out on Tuesday. Deeper Than Hell, Josh Millican. And if you're a fan of Clive Barker, if you're a fan of Cronenberg in terms of visuals, this book is going to be for you. You're going to love it. Today's guest is Josh Millican, a former colleague of mine at Dread Central, who has a brand new horror novel out, Deeper Than Hell. Fever dreams and conspiracy theories collide in an epic nightmare inspired by William S. Burroughs and Clive Parker, says the description. I read it and I concur, and I know that my co-host Ruth Ann does too. Uh, Josh is also working on the authorized biography of Richard Elfman, a cult film director and musician. So we're gonna talk about all that. Welcome to the show, Josh. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Stacy. And uh, great to be here with you too, Ruthann. Hey, Josh, lovely to connect. Nice to meet you. I really enjoyed reading it. Fantastic. I'm so glad you did. Yeah, well, let's dive right into that novel. Um, so this is your first uh, book, Josh, uh, mm -hmm. following several years of writing nonfiction as a horror genre reporter for Dread Central and other sites. Um, so what made you decide to try fiction? Well, you know, most people know me as, you know, uh, from my career in horror journalism, editor-in-chief of Dread Central. What people don't know about me is I actually come from a creative background. Uh, I got a, a degree in creative writing from UC Santa Cruz. Uh, that was even with an emphasis in poetry, but I also did the uh, short fiction uh, workshops. Um, you know, I was a nationally ranked uh, slam poet in the 90s. Uh, I've been the front man of several bands of several different genres. So I actually came from a very creative space, always wanted to be a writer. Um, and I got into journalism, I, I mean, not as like a secondary, not as a fallback, but I, I loved blogging about horror movies. And then I realized, you know, uh, my creative writing skills were a good uh, foothold into journalism because, you know, I knew how to express myself. I knew how to, you know, uh, with poetry, you're trying to be concise and things like that. So, um, you know, for the past 10 years, it's been almost exclusively um, um, journalism. So, you know, going back into this creative space, it's kind of like riding a bike, you know, because, uh, you know, this is how I was brought up. But I will say that my years as a journalist, first and foremost, really improved my writing. Uh, I knew how to cut the fat and, you know, every sentence should be a hook and uh, don't don't give the reader a chance to look away. And, uh, um, yeah, so I think my writing now really benefits from my years in journalism. But yeah, I started as a creative writer. Wow, I didn't know that. That's yeah. Really interesting. Yeah, I've always enjoyed reading your pieces online about movies. And this uh, fiction is really quite a departure, but also very, very engrossing. And I know that Ruthann has a question for you. I sure do. Um, I think I mentioned to you when we were chatting before we started recording, Josh, I found your writing style as a new author 
fresh into writing fiction, extremely cool and compelling. And I do like your word hook. Um, let's talk a little bit about the book itself. And I'd like to know more about the setting. Um, a lot of it takes places in an underground or would you say underneath a large city setting, which we know, or there's myths about that they actually exist. And I do believe they actually exist. I'd like to know your inspiration and why you chose to place your incredible story and character in this setting. Was it something personal or was it something that you were intrigued by also? That's it. it. It's something that I was intrigued by. In the 1990s, there was this documentary called Dark Days that was about um, homeless people who lived in an Amtrak tunnel underneath New York City. And they had really gone the extra mile to, it was a more extreme separation from society and they had actually built semi-permanent homes uh, down there. Uh, so, you know, they didn't even consider themselves homeless. And I was just so impressed with, um, that documentary and so intrigued by that idea you know because homelessness is such a curse and for for some of these people you could tell that they wanted more but at the same time uh they felt like they had made something comparable to uh you know a, a home and a neighborhood and a community that really fascinated me and then i read uh mole people uh you know stories of life underground uh, a nonfiction by jennifer toth you know i don't like the term mole people because i think that's uh, dehumanizing but it, it was legit in terms of you know her reporting and things like that and she actually talked about rumors of you know um communities that basically never come to the surface anymore. And she didn't have any documentation about that. That was just kind of like what, you know, the whispers that she heard. But that idea just fascinates the hell out of me. I learned about the tunnels under Las Vegas specifically from a Vice documentary. Um, and then I, I just got to say, I've always been intrigued by the concept of life underground, you know, a journey to the center of the earth. And, uh, you know, it's scary to think about monsters from outer space, but isn't it scary to think that they're already here and they could jump up and get you that maybe we're not even the smartest species on the planet because who knows what could be down there. So it was just a way to, to let my mind go. You just went, you just went in the opposite direction and managed to drag a whole lot of the actual horror of what might happen in that setting into it as well. Um, and I will emphasize horror because the story, actually um, you go into creating some characters that few of us, unless we write or read a lot in the genre, could really wrap our mind around. And that's what's so fabulous and, and interesting about reading the book. You really bring that theater underground to life through your characters. Well, thank you so much. That's wonderful to hear. Yeah, and what I liked about it, well, I mean, I liked several things about it, but one of the things that I liked is how you have the references to KISS and ACDC, you know, mm -hmm. and deeper than hell, you've got the sort of the heavy metal rock and roll connection. So um, why, in your opinion, do horror and rock music go so well together? They're both transgressive, you know, they're, they're both not afraid to go there. Uh, sex and death. And then, you know, uh, in the 80s, you know, the, the satanic uh, undertones of, of Ozzy Osbourne, uh, you know, it, it, I think it's that. It's, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, they're both uh, exploring these taboo 
areas. And, you know, uh, of course, in a novel called Deeper Than Hell, you got to have an allusion to highway to hell. I mean, come on. It's like that's the perfect kicking off. But, you know, um, we've met. So, you know, I'm a huge Kiss fan. I actually have the the guys from Kiss uh, tattooed on my knuckles here. Wow. And that story in Deeper Than Hell, where the narrator's talking about he and some friends dressed up as Kiss for Halloween, and then he got so high that for a split second he thought he was in Kiss. I mean, that's semi-autobiographical. I never got I was wondering. that high, but I was dressed up as Kiss with my friends, and I thought, man, I wish we were really a band. I wish we really were Kiss, and that we were going to go out and rock the world, because it was right in the 90s when they had reunited instead of the original members, so... You know, yeah, I just love Kiss. And, and Kiss, they were kind of like the gods of my childhood, you know, because I was born in the 70s. So, you know, they're kind of like there from the beginning of my consciousness. And, you know, the the look of them, you know, the, the uncanny valley aspect of these, you know, men with these white faces. I, I was like, what planet are they from, you know? Um, and uh, it, there was something uh, intriguing and frightening about them at the same time. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's why I've always uh, uh, had a had love for horror. I probably do. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, that uh, there was also, of course, in the 80s, the satanic panic where all the backwards masking and the groups were accused of being devil worshippers and all that. So it really does fit in with horror. And um, your book, I mean, I think like it really kind of makes you like you were saying, humanizing the people, and we can relate to that. So, you know, when we when we hear, your, you know, your characters talking about Kiss, and, you know, it's like we can relate, and we can almost put ourselves there. Yeah, well, that, that's something, you know, I hope people will be able to do. You know, something I didn't even realize until, you know, after I had written it, and I was editing it, but uh, the main character, the first person narrator, Sonny, is never defined racially or his age is never given, never even mentions like what color his hair is, you know. So I wanted I, I like that because I think it, it it makes it even easier for you to just pop yourself in there. Well, it's it's a comment and a question. Um, I, number number one point is ACDC is my favorite rock band of all time. Um, it's kind of ironic that you chose to throw Highway and Hell, Highway to Hell in there with one of the most horrific scenes in the book for me personally. Nothing like spiraling down to the bowels of whatever hell that Josh created in a shopping cart. Um, but I also think that you brought out a lot of visceral primal points, which to me, the emotions of rock and roll and horror evoke in people. I mean, they pull it out of us. Something else I love that you might want to expand a bit upon is I think horror and um, rock and roll are both anti-establishment in the way, in a way. And you brought out again in the book about how there were these government programs that have been whispered about that inspired some of your terrible characters, including Archibald, to me, who was symbolic of a rock god with his twisted groupies. So I'd kind of like to know where, where some of that came from. Was it the anti-establishment connection? Was that primal urge in all of us, like you say, as a child of the 70s, to fight against what was being forced against everybody's down everybody's throat at that point? Yeah, I think so. I think that, you know, uh, there was the idea that, you know, the, the idea of escapism, you know, uh, that things had gotten so bad that, you know, the idea of, of even looking for a, a mythic fantasy world 
became, you know, more of an actual option in life than, you know, trying to dig your way out of, of the metaphorical hole. But, you know, one of the other inspirations for Deeper Than Hell was uh, I watch a lot of YouTube videos and I love conspiracy theories. So I've read about <laughs> deep underground military bases um, and, you know, supposedly the the Area 51, Groom Lake, you know, and that's also close to Vegas. So I was like, OK, you know, he's going down and here's Vegas and here's Groom Lake. And they have these deep underground areas that you can only get to through these shafts. And so, yeah, you know, you've, you've got the one character, Archibald, who kind of like, you know, is, is he used to work for the government. And so he, he knew about these secret places. So he was actually able to kind of like lease out or usurp this area. And then actually having a scene that takes place in a deep underground military base, you know, kind of like confirming the uh, existence, you know, because I guess there's supposed to be like 12 of them across the country the only ones we know about are like a cheyenne mountain but there there's supposedly more just full cities underground so i just i just went there and i love your um allusion to the ferryman also the ferryman is somebody that shows up a lot in rock and roll lots of different songs um, your symbolism of that goes back to my classic school Catholic education, you know, the myths and legends and all that, Greek mythology and all that kind of thing. But I also think that in horror, like as in rock and roll, that is a, a um, uniting symbol, the ferryman, the crossing over into the unknown. I love that little tidbit that you put in there. Um, was there something that prompted that when you included it? Yeah, I guess just, you know, uh, I, I was making a, a clear reference to Dante's Inferno, um, you know, because, you know, there's Charon, the ferryman. And, uh, you know, when he gets, the ferryman delivers him to, uh, you know, this cult who call themselves the children of the Inferno. So you get a second allusion to Dante. And then I even, you know, go on top of that, where I do a spin on the abandon all hope, ye who enter here, you know, kind of like give a little spin on that. But yeah, you're right that the ferryman is just this uh, uh, well-known, uh, iconic character that kind of uh, crosses uh, genres, you know, and, and even a medium when you talk about literature to movies to music. Um, so it's just great, you know, and the, the metaphor of crossing over, you know, uh, it, it happens at a point where, where Sonny's near death. Uh, I don't think that's too much of a spoiler. I think that just makes people curious. You know, he, he gets on the boatman's raft when he's, you know, uh, 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 really at death's door. So uh, I thought it was appropriate and I thought it, it worked. Well, I loved it. I loved it. And another thing I'd love, I'd love if you'd create a playlist to go along with this book, because I really would like to listen to what, what you might have been listening to or what you would suggest to someone with having that on in the background when they're reading this, because so many classic rock songs rang through my head when I was reading it. Oh, fantastic. Maybe I'll do that. That would be a fun I would part. love that. I would love that. I'm going to bug you about it. I just followed you on Twitter and I'm going to poke you. Follow me on Twitter. We'll be friends. Bug me about it. I'll come up with something. That'll be a lot of fun. That would yeah, be, that'd be fun. great because the book really does kind of encourage that, especially since it is tied into your, um, some, some quotes and a lot of um, connections to the rock genre. So there absolutely needs to be a playlist, Josh. You got it. For you, Ruth Ann. 
<laughs> yeah, we have playlists for the Rock and Roll Nightmares books on mm-hmm. Spotify, and people love that. So I, I recommend that too. And they, I want to kind of go back to the Fairy Man, which has kind of made me think of Sticks. Remember the band Sticks? Yes. And yes. Their music was not at all like evil or badass. It's like, how did they come up with that name for themselves? It really didn't fit. I'm curious about your Richard Elfman book. Um, first of all, for those who aren't familiar with his work, Uh, Tell us who he is and tell us about your process in working with him on the book. Yeah, so Richard Elfman is the founder of the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo, uh, the writer-director of Forbidden Zone, a cult film that had a huge resurgence when it uh, was released uh, 20 years later on DVD. You know, and uh, probably most people would know him as the big brother and mentor of Danny Elfman, you know, uh, Richard gave Danny his boost into music uh, and and theatrics. Um, Richard and I met uh, a year or two before the pandemic, and we really hit it off. Uh, A genuine little friendship uh, sparked. And, uh, you know, when I decided uh, that I wanted to make, you know, writing my main focus, I didn't want to leave journalism behind. I love writing fiction, but I wanted to be a journalist as well. And I thought, you know, I'd love to write a biography of someone uh, who's lived a great life, of someone who's culturally important. And I knew Richard. So uh, I called him up. I'm like, can I do this? You know, and I explained to him that I wanted to work with him and have this be kind of like a 50 50 situation. And, you know, let me let me think about it, you know, but uh, finally, he he said, okay. And now, uh, no biographer has had as much fun with their subject as I've had because you, you've been to Richard Elfman's place and you've tasted Richard Elfman's cooking. He's also oh, yeah. a, a primitive gourmet uh, chef. Um, he would invite me over uh, once a week for, for months, two, two and a half months. Uh, and we'd sit on his rooftop in the Hollywood Hills as the sun went down and he would cook for me. And we would drink wine and whiskey and he would smoke cigars and I would smoke cannabis and I just had record on and I asked him everything. I needled him, you know, I would be like, no, no, back up. Richard Elfman speaks in almost punchlines. That's what I tell him. I said, you speak in punchlines. <laughs> so I was like, he'll say something like, and then I was almost killed and my wife was almost raped and I ran. And then, and I'm like, no, 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 no. And then, no, and then back up, you know? So it's been a wonderful, uh, uh, project um you know i'm still kind of in the transcribing and organizing stage and uh, i plan on doing a lot of interviews with people uh, from richard's life who uh have been affiliated with him or uh, inspired by him because uh, i know there are a lot of folks out there who who just uh, love him to death and i feel so honored to be an ambassador of these stories and you know I, I want people to know look this is not a, a an oingo boingo uh, documentary or you know this is not a um uh you know it, it's not about the mystic knights even it's about richard so it's not going to tell you everything a to z about the mystic knights or a to z about oingo boingo it'll mention those things as they pertain to his life now he's very heavily part of Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo. He founded it, so his role is very important. And in that sense, I think people who are curious about him will get information that they've never had before. You know, we went to Wikipedia, to the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo page, and we went down it sentence by sentence, and I was like, is this true? And he's like, kind of. And I was like, is this true? And he's like, no. And so, I mean, this information will be culturally valuable. And like I said, I'm just so uh, honored 
that he uh, would work with me like this. And yeah, it's it's uh, what a great situation to write a biography about someone who lived such an interesting life with him as my primary source. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've known him for years, maybe 15 years or something. I used to write for him when he was the editor and, and uh, publisher of Buzzine magazine. And so- Which we're gonna obviously talk about in his biography. Yeah, so I've known him for a long time, but I feel like I don't really know a lot about his history and his background because he's such a modest person. He really so I'm really is. looking forward to reading the book. Yeah, thank you. Um, I don't, I don't know the, the, the people, the folks you're talking about on a personal level. I am familiar with the name and the work and everything. Um, and in your, in your book, you do have a character called the Elfman as, as also, and I'm of course thinking there's a very strong connection there. Um, it's always a big responsibility when you take on the task of writing about somebody you know personally like that. I recently blurbed a book for a noted author and my gosh, I obsessed over a paragraph more than I do a whole book because you want to do him justice, you want to do them justice, you want to do their life and their story justice. Um, ultimately, I guess my question would be, um, coming from such a creative background and family, the Elfmen are known to be very creative, high creative, connected, very um, involved, interesting, expansive people. Do, do you feel that your background in terms of your education and what you've done in your career makes it a little bit easy for, easier for you to be able to connect in such a way to be able to tell the story on, with your own voice using, like you say, the many hours of recording and knowing somebody personally? Do you think it's going to be easier or harder because you've always also got a creative background? I think it's going to be easier. And, you know, um, uh, no one's lived a life like Richard Elfman. And, and you're right, Danny Elfman is so creative. And, and even their mother, Blossom Elfman, who in her 50s became a best-selling author who, who optioned her novels to be made into films. And, you know, the adventures that this guy has had and that this family has had are just amazing. You know, I didn't live that kind of life, you know, growing up with a single mother in the suburbs. And, you know, I'd venture to say most people haven't lived that kind of life. So I think most people are going to read this and be just as like have their minds blown just as much as I did. So, yeah, I think, you know, the fact that I come from this creative background, uh, the fact that I come from a journalism background uh, gives me a, a, gives me both an analytical eye and a, a really fun eye, you know, to, to use my creativity because, you know, Richard Elfman is one of the most creative, exotic characters you're ever likely to meet in your life. And I'm definitely more grounded than he is. You know, <laughs> although I am the one who got him to smoke weed after a 50 year uh, 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 abstinence from all drugs. So, you know, but uh, yeah, you know, I think that uh, it's, you know, you know, what makes me the perfect person to tell this story? The fact that he trusts me to tell these stories, you yeah, know? That's huge, that's huge, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it is an honor to be able to do such a thing. Um, and like I said, I also love that you do have a character in the book named the Elfman. Well, that actually, you know, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler. That's actually Danny Elfman, his, his younger brother. And uh, Danny Elfman and Oingo Boingo have a cameo in Deeper Than Hell. So uh, if you want to learn Danny Elfman's true uh, non-human origins, because come on, you, you didn't really think Danny Elfman was human, did you? Please. So the truth about 
what Danny Elfman is, is revealed in Deeper Than Hell. Check it out. That's right. All right. Well, we, we're winding down a bit, but I do have one last question for you that I ask most of my guests, especially the ones I really, really like. So since this is the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast, what is your personal rock and roll nightmare? My personal rock and roll nightmare. Wow, geez. Uh, you mean a, a nightmare of, of being at a show or something? It could be anything. It could even be something that hasn't happened yet. You know, I know, I know. One of my favorite bands is Ramstein. And, uh, you know, I, I, they're coming to America and I'm so on the verge of buying expensive tickets for nosebleed seats. But I actually did see them 10, 12 years ago. Uh, I was living in Northern California at the time and they came through Oakland. Now they have these shows that are uh, as theatrical as they are rocking. Lots of fire, lots of effects. Um, so I guess my rock and roll nightmare would be going to a Ramstein concert, being like right in the front row and just having this like catastrophic, you know, not, not to the point where any of the band is killed, but yeah, people in the audience are killed. And there's like, you know, uh, uh, a pyrotechnics run amok pointed in the wrong direction and crazy <laughs> things like that. So that would be my rock and roll nightmare, a, a Ramstein concert gone off the rails. But the band, right. well, the band lives. So uh, where can fans find and follow you online? And when and where can they get deeper than hell? Uh, you can follow me online. The best place now is Twitter because I don't do Instagram or any of those others. I just pick Twitter and that's where I am. So it's at Josh, J-O-S-H underscore Milliken, M-I-L-L-I-C-A-N. Uh, Deeper Than Hell comes out this Tuesday, or I don't know when this is airing, uh, Tuesday, uh, June 14th. And you can get it at Amazon. It's the first search result when you type in Deeper Than Hell. Uh, and I hope you'll check it out. Thank you, Josh. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I love you and I love your show. And Ruthann, I love you too. I know we just love met. You back, Josh. Love you, Josh. Love the book. It's going to be, gonna be awesome. really, really great out there. Great uh -oh. to have it out there. Lovely to meet you. Lovely to meet you too. Thank you both so All much. Right. And now I'm going to read an excerpt from Rock and Roll Nightmares True Stories, Volume 1. This is from the chapter, Flirtin' with Disaster. One of the first of grunge music's tragic heroes to die of an overdose was Andrew Andy Wood, 24, lead singer and lyricist of Mother Love Bone. He died before their first album dropped. The funeral was very surreal, remembered Andy's best friend and former roommate Chris Cornell. I was happy for him because Seattle's Paramount Theater was packed and they were showing films of him performing. He was a fucking rock star the day he was born. It didn't matter that he'd never sold a single record. He's the only rock star I ever met. Also known as La Andrew the Love Child, the blonde baby-faced musician was a precocious glam-inspired 14 when he formed his first band, Malfunction, with his older brother Kevin. From that grew Mother Love Bone. Mother Love Bone put out an EP, Shine, in 1989 to critical acclaim. A year later, on March 16, 1990, days before their debut album, Apple, was to be released, Andrew Wood, who'd been clean following two stints in rehab, apparently decided to fix one more time.
This concludes another episode of Rock and Roll Nightmares. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson. The theme song, Out for Blood, is composed and sung by Lars with a Z, Cabot, and the band is Fuzzbuster. You can hear the whole track in the horror comedy film, Valentine Days, also with a Z. For photos of the guests and show archives, please visit the website rockandrollthings.com. That's rock and roll with an N. You can also join the Rock and Roll Nightmares Facebook group or follow us on Instagram at Rock and Roll Nightmares Books. That's B-O-O-K-S. This is an indie podcast, so your subscriptions and ratings are really important. Thank you for joining me, and until next time...